still recording? Right, great. Hello and welcome to Movies and Tea. I'm your host as always, Edward Jones, and joining me of course is my co-host, Miss Kim Lowe. Hello. Tonight we celebrate our top first time watches of 2021. A slight change up to the usual end of list that you hear on pretty much everyone else's podcast as uh, we've decided to just go with the top 10 of the movies we've seen for the first time this year as we think it provides probably a more interesting list we get to touch on some films that probably would get missed otherwise and uh hopefully provide you all with some further viewing to watch by the end of it kim i mean how has 2021 been for yourself in terms of movie viewing has it been good bad or i mean you know 2021 is still a full year of the pandemic <laughs> halfway through we kind of got out of lockdown cinema started opening i still didn't go to theaters um i still haven't been to a theater as no. of recording so it, it's nice and quiet yeah which i think it's a big plus <laughs> so basically a lot of my 2021 watches um were on netflix a lot of uh, some of it was on shutter um and a great chunk of it was from film festivals so uh, making this list was kind of interesting because I realized that um, it was a really big struggle between <laughs> finding movies from film festivals then that didn't seem, you know, just interesting to me. <laughs> but at the same time still had, you know, like a lot of rewatchability and was really fun to watch or had some kind of uh, deeper meaning, emotional or whatever it is. Um, but, I mean, basically, 2021 was pretty good. I think, overall, uh, there a lot of my higher-rated movies were pretty much rewatches, um, yeah. which left me kind of a little bit in the ditch. But, uh, I mean, I'm catching up to some of the movies that came out um, and also catching up on some of the movies that I do want to watch, uh, hopefully before they leave the streaming services, because you never know when they leave, and by the time they leave, it's already too late to catch them sometimes. <laughs> Um, so yeah, that's basically it. I focus actually a lot more on TV series this year than on movies for a good bulk. So, um, if anybody follows me on Letterboxd, they'll see that I'm like probably a hundred movies less than what I normally would watch. Okay. And all that hundred movies time was basically from binging TV series or, I don't know, trying to exercise more or something, you know? <laughs> yeah. I mean, for myself, I've had like... I was zero interest in anything on TV, and then this last month or so, it's suddenly been, been like all these great TV shows have just appeared out of nowhere. Like we've had Yellow Jackets, we've had Chucky. It's like, where were you at the start of the year? Because there has been damn old to watch between the, between then and now. Um, and obviously, I mean, we obviously had the Squid Games, which everyone has been um, pretty much binging away at. So. It's, uh, I've got some catching up to do on TV, but it's, for some reason, it's been very much a movie year this year for myself, so. Um, but should we kick things off then? What did you have at your number 10 in your first time watches of 2021? Uh, my first pick, uh, well, my, my, my number 10 is, um, Beyond the Infinite Two Minutes, uh, which is, <laughs> which is a Japanese, uh, basically one-shot film. Like, I mean, a lot of people know Japanese films, basically the one-shot type of thing is uh, the One Cut of the Dead movie, yeah. uh, which is one I really, really think is really great. But Beyond the Infinite Two Minutes is basically a sci-fi movie. Um, it's, it's using a the two minutes between 
um, a computer security camera and reality delay. And that delay between the two computers is what's causing them to have this kind of space-time continuum. And as this group of friends in this cafe uh, start learning more and more about it, they start trying to expand on those two minutes and trying to cut in that time. And it, it, it's a really goofy movie um, overall. And I think that much more than any of it, any of the film, as much as the film itself is funny, you even like, I think the best part of it is even at the end in the credits when you watch them film the thing and the budget and the casting is so little. I think it's this uh, uh, acting troupe that did it. So they're not even professional actors. Um, and, and basically what they did is they basically everybody who wasn't in a scene would be you'd see them carrying like the monitors with them <laughs> and like the cords up the stairs and then it was so funny when you watch like the behind the scenes of how they were filming it as well um and and i think i you know i think that beyond the infinite two minutes is is definitely i, I feel like it's definitely going to get big for for the fact that it is really entertaining and um it's, I think, I'm not sure whether it's out of the festival circuit right now, but I watched it in Fantasia, and I think it was one of the more enjoyable films, especially during the festival, because it, it, it's so relaxing to watch, so fun, and it wasn't, like, you know, scaring your pants off or something like that. <laughs> so, definitely, like, the concept is there, and... It's it's interesting because we never kind of, we never think about those delays in life, which can craft an entire you know the entire story. Yeah, I mean, Beyond the Infinite Two Minutes has certainly had a lot of buzz, especially amongst the Asian cinema fa fans. It's had been picked up for a home release through Third Window Films, so you can watch it outside the festival circuit now. And certainly, One Cut the Dead, we had a lot of fun with when we reviewed it on this show, and I've certainly got. Uh, Beyond the Infinite Two Minutes to look at at some point. It's high on my watch list, so um, either we'll review it here or over the Asian Cinema Film Club, I will be uh, getting around to it in the near future, and even more so now that you've added it to your top ten. Yeah, so, yeah, I mean, I really, really like the film. Um, I mean, it's, it, it's, it's so great to see that it's finally getting a home release also. But, yeah, moving on, what's your, what's your top, what's your tenth spot? <laughs> Uh, my 10th spot is a Japanese film directed by Mika Ningwara from 2012, and that's Helter Skelter. A really fantastic psychological thriller, very much in the vein of like Black Swan, Perfect Blue, um, where you have this model called Lilico who's undergone all these surgeries to create herself this... It, and turn herself into like this vision of beauty and she's sort of like on the cover of all the magazines all the young girls want to be her and she's sort of like the talk of the town but when her um, a new model sort of turns up and friends to take her top spot she sort of begins this descent into madness um, along the way using her looks and her beauty to sort of control people to try and regain and hold her place on the top of the modeling pile and it's a visually fantastic movie which is not really surprising seeing as the director's background is in photography and especially fashion photography and I think this is one of those films that's kind of slipped under the radar but I would love to see it get um, a little more sort of coverage a lot more people discover it because it's an absolutely beautiful movie and it's so full of color and every shot is just so well composed it's like um you're watching a fincher movie just 
in brighter tones because we obviously know he loves to work in his dark tones but this is essentially doing the same thing but just in really bright colorful tones and it's just a really great psychological thriller and one well worth checking out i mean i've never like i've never seen helter skelter but i i really like the whole angle of um of the whole colorful but being kind of more suspenseful type of film um actually when you talked about this movie it kind of the names that the director sounded so familiar and actually there's another film that she did that i really really like um and she filmed that in i think it was 2019 um and it was called diner okay and yeah. diner is also that type of film where i thought it was visually so pretty and for me i think that year diner probably made my top 10 or top 15 or something also uh, it, it's such it's also has this kind of suspenseful you're in this diner which is run by um, this guy and then some girl comes in because she has to pay off a debt and she realizes she's in so deep because there's all these assassins that are that dine there and it's solely <laughs> a diner for assassins and they are all like batshit bonkers you know so <laughs> and when things go nuts they they basically it's just this wild crazy um you know slashing and then like there's a lot of knives and guns and <laughs> all that stuff it just goes really wild as you get to the end and then they have to figure out how to escape this and stuff like that um it it's it's ridiculous because on top of that there's a lot of like food porn in it also um because it's a diner and he's presenting all these different foods that these assassins like to eat and the different type of things so and and it, it's just such a it's so amazing that you know when i looked at the pictures for helter skelter i thought it reminded me so much of that because i i really do enjoy that type of style where as much as you know we're big fans of fincher and you know uh, as as you know later on <laughs> we already passed through fincher right yeah. yeah, yeah, like as we you know shared all of our likes for Fincher himself and, and the dark tones and all that stuff. I also really like films. I think that a person that is able to use colors is even in a bigger contrast when you're doing it in kind of like a suspenseful or kind of like a darker type of film. Um, I think that effect is that contrast is even bigger, and I and I really really do enjoy that type of style. Number nine for yourself, Kim. Uh, number nine is a Taiwanese film called Hello to Pier. It's from 2020, but I think it was running Festival Circuit this year, so it was still hanging about, you know, the joys of pandemic. <laughs> 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 but yeah, um, Hello to Pier is kind of a, I guess it's a fantasy drama. It's a mix of real life and animation um, where it talks about a little boy uh, who who loses his father in in um, in a storm because he's a fisherman. Uh, he loses him at sea, but his whole family doesn't tell him, and they just kind of hide the fact that his father isn't back and that he's still at sea. Uh, but deep down, you know, he keeps thinking about the story where uh, he, the, the, it's like this kind of legend or tale where, um, his father told him in the forest when he was younger that he saw this magical tapir who's able to eat all of your nightmares. It's this nightmare creature, like nightmare-eating creature, who comes out of the forest um, into the town where they are to suck up all of the all of the bad dreams that people have. 
And between that and his little hunt for the tapir and the adult's version and the contrast of the adults dealing with this tragedy and trying to hide it from him, the stories kind of collide when they realize, you know, that, you know, you have that moment where he really does know that his father is gone, but this is his way to cope with it type of thing when no one's telling him everything. Um, So there's a lot of like, you know, parental bonding with his kind of like estranged mother who's divorced already. So she doesn't live there. Um, but at the same time, you also have the whole family bonding and um, trying to get through this tragedy together. And um, the fantasy element is done really well, too. The animation is is really, really pretty. And it actually reminded me a lot of another uh, Taiwanese movie that came out uh, back in, I don't know, 2000, somewhere, early 2000, somewhere like that. And it was called Starry, Starry, Starry Night, which was based on a children's book. Uh, but yeah, I mean, this is so beautiful, like, because I, I, I don't know. I mean, I think the whole idea of using a tapir is so interesting because it's not a creature that people usually talk about. So, no, it's not an animal that's in vogue, really, is it? It's not like a yeah. sloth or a llama or anything like that. Yeah. It's weird and, how certain animals are in vogue at weird times. So Yeah, and tapirs are, you know, they describe it in such a magical way because he has, you know, like, the hooves of horses and and that sort of thing and they describe it in this really like elaborate oh he has like a nose a snout of whatever and then the ears of whatever and then the hooves of whatever i can't remember the exact thing right now but it, it's it's just makes this creature even more magical and i, I think it's it's, it's just be- and, and plus like i think it's also the fact that i'm a real <laughs> i'm a really big fan i'm a real sucker for movies that bring like animation and reality together yeah, real sucker for those movies. Okay, I like a bunch <laughs> of those movies. <laughs> so this one really, really got me. And plus, um, the whole um, I think the emotions of the whole thing were done really well, um, especially with the kids really having that naivety to them. Uh, and 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 you know you have Charlie Young in the in the parent parent role, and I haven't seen her acting in Mandarin in a really long time, so it was really <laughs> refreshing. Next up on my list is Kate from 2021, a Netflix exclusive by Cedric Nicholas Troyan, who previously did The Huntsman and uh, Winter's War, uh, with the follow-up to uh, Snow White and The Huntsman. A film that I was really out on, um, but um, Kate is a film I think has really divided a lot of people. There's people out there who really love it, and there's people out there who just really hate it, but this is a film I just love from start to finish and obviously stars Mary Elizabeth Winstead who I know those actresses I can never place but I've enjoyed her in every role I've seen her in from like Death Proof and Scott Pilgrim she was the Huntress in um, Harley Quinn and Birds of Prey uh, she's in Swiss Army Man and Ten Cloverfield Lane and she's in all these great roles but I can never ever place her which is just so bad but here she's uh, once again gets to do another action role which is always great to see as she plays an assassin who's irreversibly poisoned and then says she has 24 hours to extract revenge on her enemies and find out who's the person responsible for poisoning her along the way forming a bond with the daughter of one of her past victims um who sort of joins her along the way giving it a kind of a Leon-esque um, feel to it but this is just a really great movie it's shot in a neon lit Tokyo um, and just the whole visual style of this movie is just 
adds that other layer to it with Wooder Harrison once again playing the elder mentor role which seems to be his new current lot in life so um, I really enjoyed it and I think it's uh, one well, well worth checking out definitely um, a good exclusive from Netflix for sure <laughs> yeah I, I remember you talking so highly about it and I never got around to watching it <laughs> <laughs> it's always the way when it's like something like Razorback and you think yeah I'm totally going to watch it and then just something shinier appears and you yeah. just completely forget about it I think that's the case with Kate because it came out of the time where I think there was a lot of um, foreign films that were really mm. high profile or TV series or something I can't remember exactly um, and on top of that Kate kind of I really like these like femme fatale type of roles um, so I'm definitely going to watch it hopefully before the end of the year or within the next few weeks. Um, but, uh, but I mean, Kate has this kind of, you know, when you talk about the plot, it has this kind of more serious <laughs> crank type of plot where you have yeah. a certain type of like time frame to get stuff done. And it's very like, it's, it's, it's a very familiar type of setup, right? Mm. But, um, it, I don't have issues with things being familiar as long as the execution is good. And honestly, just like you said, Mary, Mary Elizabeth Winstead, I actually, I only remember her from 10 Cloverfield Lane. And that was such a toned down film that I've actually don't know that she was in any other action film. So when you said, oh, in another action role, I was kind of like, oh, OK, that's interesting. She's slowly been easing into these roles. I mean, she's done a few of in the past. I mean, she was in the Thing um, remake slash prequel. So she, and she was also in like the remake of Black Christmas. You go through a list and you can see her having all these like roles where she does action. I mean, she obviously did fight scenes in Scott Pilgrim as well, where she was Ramona. That's true, and, right? Yeah, and it's all like I'm just all for like kick-ass ladies. It's all like I mean, I I grew up watching like Hong Kong action cinema, so like Michelle Yeoh and Maggie Chung, like all these like kick-ass ladies, and it's great to now finally see it coming across the West, and we're seeing like um, people like. Like Charlie Throne uh, and Mary Elizabeth Winston, Claire Foy, um, and the uh, chick who plays Harley Quinn, whose name is just eluding me for whatever reason at this moment, uh, Margot Robbie. Um, just women just getting out there and handling business for themselves. It's great. So more of that in 2022 is what I want to see. <laughs> Yeah, for sure. I mean, you look at the set, you look at the cast list of, of um, Kate, and it's it's really incredible. I mean, other than Woody Harrelson, which is pretty popular, I'm actually surprised to see Miyavi having a role also because she's. I only know her from Japanese music. She's like this guitarist and and whatnot. He, she, she is a she. <laughs> what Miko Minoru? Because Miyavi actually coincidentally. Um, I mentioned Diner before, and Miyavi actually does um, a, uh, a she does the song with someone else, um, another another guitarist or something, um, with uh, for for that for for that film, like uh, the film score, like the main theme of the of the film. And I, okay. that was when I that's when I know knew about this person, and it's because uh, I don't really listen to a lot of Japanese music. So. Yeah, but, um, <laughs> but you look at a lot of the names actually look really familiar. Also, I mean, I'm not very good at recognizing a lot of um, a lot of Japanese actors because their names are just too long. Okay, but I mean, um, see, there are some definitely that sound very familiar. Well, we got uh, June Kanemura who was yeah. in Kill Bill. Right. I uh, was also in Audition and Issue the Killer, Hardboiled. Just a whole bunch of really great uh, cinema. He's done a lot of like 
productions like we you know where you've got uh western productions where they've had uh eastern actors in there uh you've also got uh tanabo Antonero, who was in most recently in the most recent um mortal kombat he was also in the four movies as well um i'm just trying to like find like obvious examples here for them as well but yeah he was also in Nisha the killer as well so and he's also going to be in um, but yeah, he's in all the four movies as well. So, I think there's a lot of people that you sort of recognise when you when you see them um, in here. But yeah, just just uh, again, just ladies handling business themselves is is what what I want to see more of. So, mm. number eight, Kim. Yes, and so my number eight is uh, to 2015's The Dressmaker, starring okay. the beautiful Kate Winslet, obviously. <laughs> um, I think it's you and Jay that get excited about the prospect to Kate Winslet. I think I've slightly gone past Kate Winslet, even though she's sort of uh, back to doing interesting roles again. Finally, so I don't know. I've always been really, um, I really like Kate Winslet. I think she she's such a she's such a diverse type of actress. Yeah, um, like sh- there are so some very low key type of films that she's done um, that. I never expected uh, I never expected her to do or didn't expect her to do well because I think that you know from her early roles till right now you kind of see this really big change but I guess I mean if you were thinking about the fact that you know Kate Winslet kind of started I guess she got really famous much like Leonardo DiCaprio from Titanic then there's actually like there's so much more to her um, that's grown since then to to other roles, and as she's matured, I actually think the role she takes is is a little bit more daring, a little bit more diverse. Um, I still have a lot of catching up to do, but I, I you know I feel like not, none of it has really disappointed me. Um, but yeah, I mean, Dressmaker is about this um, kind of uh, she's a dressmaker. <laughs> she's a dressmaker that comes back after she's been kind of sent away uh when she was young um accused of uh killing a a little boy type of thing that was in her class and and she comes back to take care of her mother in kind of like this rural australian town um they're very small-minded very small town um and as she goes there she brings this kind of like haute couture to the to the village and she starts trying to transform the women to help transform the women there but she has a secondary plot and that's um she has this kind of like a femme fatale with a sewing machine type of deal where she's actually there to find the truth about this blanked out portion of her of whether she actually did kill someone and i think that that's where this film really does it for me is yes it's based on a book that i've never read of the same name um, and but the story itself is so intriguing because when you look at a film called The Dressmaker, you don't really expect it to be about finding out about this murder story. Um, there are other parts of it. You know, she has you know, there's like a little romantic romantic segment with um, Liam Hemsworth. Hemsworth. Um, there's also uh, there's also that whole part with her mother where she's trying to build this thing, but it also still has that kind of small time type, small town type of um, closed mindedness towards her and like this um, 
like that people want to preserve their power or want to preserve their roles or you know trying to hide the truth and whatnot uh and and then you have this whole revenge of where she's trying to find the truth and trying to you know kind of manipulate people into giving her the information that she needs with her beauty or her dress skills or her dressmaking skills and whatnot and it's just so many layers that i didn't really expect when i started the film um not to mention you know other than the costumes being really nice there's this really kind of fun type of darker type of humor also embedded in there so it it's it's pretty nice i think overall um Maybe it's even, you know, it might even, like, touch a little on the character study because for her, she, her character really digs very deep into this element of her feeling like she's been cursed because of what happened before and, and that sort of thing. And, and she has to kind of break out of it. And at the end, it comes to this, like, really crazy type of ending. Nice. Um, don't want to have seen yet, but I'll have to check it out now that you recommended it. <laughs> yeah, so your number eight? Yep. Uh, my number eight is a film for, film that I caught as part of this year's uh, Halloween viewing, because uh, this year we did Hooptober uh, for the first time, and it gave me a chance to cross this one off the list. And that's uh, from 2018. It's Climax by Gaspar Noé, the Belgian infant terribler. Um, this is his uh, psychotropic dance party that you're probably best known for the five minute single shot uh, dance routine that it opens with uh, basically a group of dancers um, are staying in this abandoned school uh, where they're celebrating the end of the week that they spend working on their dance routines and they're having this big party but unfortunately somebody spiked the sangria with lsd and it leads them into a downward spiral of paranoia and hysteria as things take a very dark turn and this being a gaspar noe movie dark is very much the, the uh, tone of the film this is um a really really engaging movie both visually and just stylistically um you can actually get away if you what say to someone you know just watch the end credits they can actually skip out all the darkness because he shoves his end credits halfway through the movie and the first half of this movie is basically a lot of really cool dancing and these very oversexed dancers basically talking about how they we've uh uh, screwing other dance members or how they want to screw other dance members of their troupe um, and then after the credits the LSD kicks in and everything goes horribly horribly wrong as people start engaging in acts of mutilation there's paranoia um, as they start to turn on each other and other people start losing their inhibitions as it all turns into this real nightmarish uh, vision that you're sort of drawn into and just taken along for the ride it's not going to be one for old taste as is the case with old no ways movies but for some reason i watched uh, irreversible when it came out and i sort of didn't pick up on any of his films that uh followed and i think after watching climax i really want to go back and like check out some of the ones i missed like love and uh mm -hmm. enter the void just to see what else i've been missing but um certainly climax if uh You've got a dark, taste of the darker side of cinema, or uh, just wanting something different? Is uh, one worth checking out? 
<laughs> you know, the funny story of Climax is that I actually almost saw it for, I think it was Fantasia. Okay. And, <laughs> and then I think it was, I had a scheduling error and then I gave it up. Uh, <laughs> now I kind of regret it now that you're talking about it like that. Um, you know, the thing is that I, you know, unlike you, I've seen Love. <laughs> that was my only Gaspar Noé <laughs> film that I've seen. And it's not a bad movie. I, I thought it was it was very sufficient for, for what it was trying to do. Um, you yeah. Know, the whole love concept. And it's, to me, I don't remember it being very dark or very nightmarish. Um, but there was a lot of sex. <laughs> so Yeah, it's, from what I, from what I hear, because it's, again, it's one of those movies, it's sort of like, and it features full penetrative sex. And it's like, we had that with Bayes Moir. Um, which had the ballsiness to like use the title base wild, which is essentially just means either fuck me or rape me, depending on who you speak to. Um, and that was, as I said, I remember that one being causing a lot of fuss when it came out. And now every now and again, you have another film that's like, oh yeah, we're doing penetrative sex, like nine songs or love. And I think love was shot in 3d as well, which got abused in some way from what I've been told. So Think there was like a jacklet at the camera or something yeah, love <laughs> grotesque was, love was a really weird um odd movie i guess um i yeah i kind of like movies like that because it explores the concept of love and um you know like these kind of untraditional type of love um and in this case it's very i think it's it i don't know if it hit i can't remember the film really well but i think it um hits into the threesome type of concept Okay. Um, because they kind of invite like this neighbor <coughs> over or something, um, and they end up having stuff going on. Obviously, uh, I like I said I can't remember exactly, but I remembered watching it and visually it was really nice. But I had seen another, I think it was a Spanish film okay. uh, that I liked a whole lot more in terms of the whole digging into this whole threesome type of relationship. Yeah, um, another very unconventional type of story. Uh, so yeah, I mean, I like really weird love stories. <laughs> you have to go to Europe though to find these movies. You don't find it like, obviously, you can't find it in like uh, the Asian market because it's a little too censored. You can't find it obviously in um, the Western shows like uh, Britain or America again because it's too censored. But if you go to Europe, I mean, they're pretty free and open about these things. And I've got von Trier's Nymphomaniac. Um, duo to watch it at some point because that's still in the arrow player so i keep saying i'm gonna watch it but it's still like oh, do i really I... want to watch two movies of people screwing it's oh you haven't watched it yet <laughs> no part one is immensely better than part two in my opinion <laughs> so <laughs> well that's something <laughs> another recommendation from kim there so i will we will see if that makes next year's first time viewing list um, so <laughs> yeah um, uh, number seven. At, yeah. So yeah, my number seven is a Chinese film from mainland China called Better Days. Okay. And um, yeah, and and it's about the it's about uh two unlikely teens who end up meeting each other. Um, the first is a high school girl who is um struggling with bullying at school. Um, amidst the, you know, pressure of the college entrance exams that she has to do, uh, which is where her mother has all her hopes on her when, when she, <laughs> in order to have a better life, basically. 
um, and try to break away from all of these <laughs> kind of illegal deals that she's doing in the background to support their living. Um, and during this process, she ends up uh, meeting this teenage street thug who has dropped out from school. Um, and in this process, they kind of deal with, they kind of bond over their misfortunes, pretty much. Um, he protects her from having, he protects her in the shadows from, um, from all the bullying that she's going through and giving her kind of like a safe haven where for him, this is someone that kind of gives him, uh, companionship, um, in this kind of rough life that he had, he has and kind of something like a meaning to move on. <laughs> So that they kind of have this future together. Uh, so I mean, that, I mean, Better Days was last. It was nominated last year uh, as a um, in the Academy Awards for uh, best horror for best foreign film. But obviously, they didn't win. I, I can't remember who won. I think it was Parasite. Uh, was it Parasite? I can't remember. Anyways, it wouldn't surprise me because Parasite pretty much bought <laughs> everything's when it. Came I wasn't out, sure so. because he would. They were best picture. So would they have? Would they have also been in Best Foreign Picture? I don't know. Uh, but either way, I, I don't remember. I didn't watch the Academy Awards last year. But uh, so long. <laughs> you, you think, oh, it's going to be really short, but it's not. It's like four hours long and nothing. you got the minor categories nobody ever cares about that you're going to get through as well. You just, you're just better off watching the highlights. Yeah, pretty much. I mean, you just want to know who wins, right? <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> who cares about the nominees and stuff like that? Uh, but yeah, no, I mean, Better Days is, I think it's kind of, when you look at, um, when you look at kind of the uh, ratings online and stuff, it is very split in terms of uh, the, you know, just the messages trying to portray and stuff like that. But the film itself, the main purpose is, is really in the end is that it's supposed to highlight the... Um, the immense, the intense bullying that exists in school. Um, and actually the film's final bit is talking about um, the efforts that China has done from its beginning till now on the different rules they've enforced in order to control bullying inside the school. Because the bullying in here gets, in this film, gets really intense. Like, it, it's ridiculously crazy. Like, it, it, it's just an incredibly wild. Because in there's like a very intense scene of 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 just this girl and how like how the how the bullying increases just because she was just because of an action that she did uh because of someone else who was bullied and then the attention kind of turned to her type of thing uh so i mean the movie is really i think it's meaningful there's a, the, the relationship between them are really good and um, if, if people are familiar with, like, Chinese actors and actresses, then the main actress here is pretty popular. <laughs> and, um, the guy is popular because he, he, he used to be, you know, he's been in the business for a really long time. He was part of, part of a boy band when he was 15 or something. Yeah, TF Boys, wasn't it? Yeah, exactly. I only yeah. know about them because team member Steph loves her. Her <laughs> Asian boy band, so. Yeah, I probably so... know more about through her, so. Yeah, but Jackson Yi is, is is very different because he he is he has really changed. Like he's really grown through a lot of the being in the business and really found a different style from his TF Boys days. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, no. But the I mean, it's it's really interesting because I've never I think this is for his first probably one of his first actual acting roles and he does a really great job. Um from all the filming to everything, I really think Better Days is is really nice. Um but I mean 
I think a cautionary thing that if you're, especially if you're not familiar with Chinese films, is that Chinese films do have a certain essence to them, I guess, where uh, like a certain type of filming style in terms of drama and how they portray it, that if people, I think, coming from foreign films coming into it, I, th- I think some people might think it's a little bit overdramatic. <laughs> yeah. But it, I think that once you, if you've seen a few of these and can really get past that, I think that a lot of the messages are done really, really well. Because, I mean, even for me, I think when I was first, like, obviously I watched Hong Kong films growing up, but um, films from mainland China do have a different feeling. Even if this one is uh, directed by Derek Zhang, and he is a Hong Kong director before he moved, went to do this film. So, Yeah, definitely another one I need to add to, add to my list. I mean, I, I don't watch enough, like, film to mainland China. I mean, I think the last one I saw was like Touch of Sin, which I really enjoyed. Um, I think I saw that one last year. And so when it is unfortunate that we only seem to sort of focus mainly on like the Hong Kong film industry. We tend to overlook a lot of the output of mainland China. So I would definitely give this one um, a look as well. So another one for my watch list, Kim. So well done there. Yeah, you know, the thing is like, I just one more note, I think is that mainland China to me, because I've been really focusing on that market for um, the last two years or so. And to me, I really think that there they are a growing market. And there is a lot of growing potential there. Because um, I think there's a lot of hidden talent that people haven't, haven't discovered yet. I, I really believe that there's a lot of really great movies. But it's just because China closes themselves off so much that makes their films really inaccessible. Even for me, I think it's really hard to find some films, especially finding it and then having it in English subtitles (laughs) is an even bigger challenge. Um, It's nice because they are getting into the YouTube thing. So some of the films are being shown on YouTube and you can find them and then they have the closed captions. So that helps. But I mean, I would love to recommend so many more films that I've seen. But even for me, I have some films that I have the hardest time finding. And I've been trying to find them for like the past year or so. <laughs> I still haven't been able to find them. So that's, that's a, it's a struggle. It's a constant struggle. <laughs> Shitty TV series you can find everywhere. The same plot over and over, hashed to death. You can find them easily. But these good like indie circuit movies, really hard to find. For myself, at number seven, um, we have got Vice Versa, China. Um, this is actually the second year where we've had wrestling documentaries make the top ten. I mean, previous, last year we had You Cannot Kill David Arquette and Now in the Coffin, The Vampiro Story. And this year I've been really kind of blessed. A lot of my weird obsessions have had documentaries made about them, like The Descendants I caught filmage for. Um, there was also like the Odushe tapes. School World and this and obviously with Action Park we had uh, Class Action Park uh, which was also a phenomenal documentary but China um, for those not into pro wrestling she was a female wrestler a uh, real name Joni China Laura and she was unique in the fact that she actually was one of the few female wrestlers who actually wrestled the guys. Uh, she was introduced as the female bodyguard of the bad boy stable de- uh, Degeneration X, and she was like their female bodyguard. And she, through there, she's like built up this legacy, and she sort of fell out of the industry and made a few sort of career choices that sort of sort of 
sort of kind of blacklisted from the industry and this documentary charts her history in wrestling as well as her sort of final days and there was a lot of talk with uh, with Viceland who do obviously do the Dark Side of the Ring series which is a phenomenal documentary series and I recommend you all check it out whether China would be covered and they said no because they were doing the standalone documentary and I think they made the right choice in doing it as a standalone documentary because it is a really phenomenal piece of work it's very heartbreaking especially if you're a fan of her work to see her in this state where she's basically when they find her again she's working as a teacher in china and she's suffering a lot of problems with like alcohol and drug abuse and she's getting herself clean and getting herself prepared for this comeback and it sort of all spirals out of control um until her sort of untimely demise as she uh, dies of an overdose sadly which is caught on film and it's unfortunate as well because this documentary really charts some of the scummy people that she was sort of surrounded with um, at the end, including a very unscrupulous manager who, even in her death, was busy trying to exploit every last dime out of her name. But if you're a fan of her, I think this is like a very important documentary to uh, to watch and one that was definitely worth uh, coming out just to tell sort of the full story of her legacy, especially while she's still being denied um being part of the wrestling hall of fame because she when she left wrestling she went off and did porn and they frown on that despite the many unscrupulous things that male performers do but uh that's a discussion for another podcast but uh yeah vice versa china is uh is my next pick nice yeah i always end up learning more about uh wrestling (laughs) (laughs) documentaries from you so (laughs) It's uh, wrestling. I mean, wrestling's one of those things. It's sort of like if you're not a fan, it's very hard to explain what the appeal of a predetermined sport. But if you're a fan and you're in this world, like you, there's no reason, no excuses needed for like why you love it. It's just understood. So, but um, yeah, I, I wait to see what 2022 is going to bring in terms of wrestling documentaries and. Hopefully a new season of Dark Side of the Ring because the three seasons we've had have all been phenomenal. So, um, but uh, yeah, Kim, number six, what did you have? Number six is, oh boy, it's a good pick because it's, you know what, it's part, it's going to be kind of like a spoiler alert for our upcoming season. And um, and that's Inglorious Bastards from 2009. <laughs> um Quentin Tarantino making it on my top 10 first time watches is so surprising to me. (laughs) Maybe not to other people, but to me. Okay. And you'll all know why when you join us for the next season, when we talk about Quentin Tarantino. (laughs) So, you know, a little bit spoiler on that level. But Inglorious Bastards, for people who don't know, is an alternate history story uh, which has basically two plots going on. One is you're following, I believe, the kind of like the Nazi side and the German leadership type of thing. And then you have the other side where you have kind of like the this kind of uh, the the cinema owner. <laughs> I don't remember what you call it. Shosanna. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Shosanna. And she's a uh, what cinema? Yeah, she, she owns a cinema. And she's trying, and she basically, she has a whole plot of 
trying to um, assassinate pretty much the guy who killed her family. So there's, there's, you know, there's multiple plots going on at the same time. And basically, it's kind of like this alternate history with the set during, like, the Hitler times and whatever. And you have all these things culminating together. And it just fits so well together. All the roles are so great. And that kind of, like, I don't know what you call it, I guess, dark humor, the violence, the dialogue, the cast, everything is just so good in this one. Um, I mean, I don't compliment Quentin Tarantino a lot, <laughs> but this movie was really a breeze to get through, and I, I really, really, I really, really loved it, and um, I don't want to talk too much about it because, you know, I want to save it for, you know, next season when we talk about <laughs> the Inglorious Bastards so we don't waste it all here. Yeah, definitely so. I mean, I would just say that of his filmography, I think this one has just sort of aged so well since its release, and I think maybe because, like, Reservoir Dogs and Pulp Fiction are now, and even, like, Kill Bill to an extent is so part of, like, everyday public knowledge like everybody knows what those movies are they're so referenced and then you've got like Inglorious Bastards and the films which come after it which are less uh, so referenced that you forget just how good this movie is so yeah I can totally understand why you would have it on uh, on your list so but um, really great discussion coming up on that one so look out for that episode yeah and your uh, pick my number six um, is Brandon Cronenberg's Possessor um, which is a film that got a lot of people very excited in the Gentleman's Guide to Midnight Cinema group. And obviously Brandon Cronenberg, the son of David Cronenberg, the body horror maestro extraordinaire. And here, Brandon, he uh, follows up after quite a while, really, because, I mean, his first film was uh, 2012's Antiviral, um, about people collecting the infections of their favorite celebrities and possessor he now comes here to, um, in 2020 um, where you follow this assassin who has the ability to inhabit the bodies of uh, different people and use them to carry out assassinations unfortunately she finds herself stuck in the born of the bodies of her latest assignment and finds her mind slowly deteriorating as she tries to find a way out um much like father much sorry son much like father is clearly a fan of body horror as well as we get that element in there but this is just a really interesting sort of cyberpunk-esque tale um of uh where people can have their bodies taken over and used as um uses a way for assassins to carry out their targets but it's just a really phenomenal movie and one that just stuck with me long after the uh, credits have rolled and a, a real highlight of this year and I was glad that I finally got a chance to see it because it was for the longest time was on the festival circuit and just wasn't getting the distribution and then finally um, I was able to get, to get a chance to watch it but uh, well worth the wait it's awesome I mean, it sounds good. Uh, obviously, body horror is not my first choice, and hence why <laughs> Cronenberg has never been on top of my list or anything. Um, but I mean, uh, it sounds really good. I mean, it sounds it sounds it sounds like a really solid film. I I definitely would add it to my list. Nice. Um, yeah, and my number five. Yes, into is, the top fives now. Yeah, my number five was a uh, last-minute edition, actually. Um, as I caught up with uh, Shang-Chi and the Legend of the Ten Rings. 
thanks to a, you know, cheap Disney Plus month. (laughs) (laughs) Good way to catch up on those Marvel movies. (laughs) Yeah, well, you know, this is the only Marvel movie I caught up with. (laughs) So, yeah, no, I mean, if people don't know, I mean, uh, Shang-Chi is basically about this guy who who gets uh, brought back to... To the I don't know that's just the, the the Ten Rings facility organization with his sister um, because his father has gone a bit cuckoo and and thinks that <laughs> there's a voice calling out to him of uh, their mother of their of their dead mother who's calling to him to save him from because her her home Talo has uh, trapped her behind this gate or something. <laughs> And he has, he ends up having to, you know, they, they end up having to face up to the Ten Rings organization, which is a big showdown. Um, I mean, this is like, you know, the simplified version of the whole story, obviously. Um, but, you know, I haven't enjoyed a Marvel film so much in a really long time. And Shang-Chi is very, uh, I guess it's also very new as in like, it's, it's fairly standalone. Uh, in the sense that it, it does uh, have a few callbacks to, um, in a clever way, to, you know, past films, you know, Iron Man 3, and um, there's a character from Doctor Strange who appears, and um, the post credits also do kind of link back to the whole uh, MCU. But in, in, in the whole spectrum of things, I think the film is really great because you get to see, you know, Michelle Yeoh, and then you get to see... Tony Lung being uh, speaking really good English, surprisingly. I don't know why I'm so surprised. <laughs> you know, I mean, Hong Kong was <laughs> was a British <laughs> British colony, <laughs> so I don't know why I, I, I do that. But then you know you have a fantastic Aquafina who who shows up and she she is just this like <laughs> bubbly wild character as she usually is that adds kind of like this um, humor to the whole thing. And obviously, uh, Simu Liu from from Kim's Convenience, who is who is uh, <laughs> who has very decent Mandarin. Um, I was actually surprised, but I mean, he did immigrate fairly older to Ch- to to Canada, so um, it's, it's I shouldn't be that surprised, honestly. <laughs> but no, I think the whole thing comes together really nicely. Uh, I really I really like the whole plot, the whole concept. Yeah, it's a Marvel film. You know, the plot isn't too hard to figure out, but. Um, there are some really great fighting sequences, some really um, nice, you know, action choreography, uh, some really nice dialogue, and um, I don't know. I think the whole thing comes together really nice. Definitely so. Um, this is a big surprise for myself. I think this and Black Widow, uh, which took up places eighteen and nineteen on my own top fifty for the year, um, I was just so super surprised because I've been kind of. Uh, feeling a bit of the uh, drain with the old Marvel movies because they're all essentially the same and when you have Shang-Chi comes along and it feels like something fresh and I think because it's such a standalone adventure rather than being part of this bigger story it just gets to do its own thing and the cast as you said already it's absolutely stacked here and we've got Simu Liu who for some reason I thought was Korean mainly because I've watched a lot of Kim's Convenience but he's not <laughs> um, obviously Tony Lung Hollywood, uh, not Hollywood, Hong Kong legend that he is. Um, I suppose it's, it's just really great to see them getting some of his caliber. I mean, obviously, clearly they didn't have Anthony Wong money, but uh, it's always nice to see Michelle Yeoh as well, who just appears to be in everything now. 
So it's really uh, getting credit. And obviously, Aquafina, never a bad thing to see as well. Uh, I have to say, really surprising as well to see a mainstream Hollywood film, much less a Marvel movie, with so much Mandarin. Yeah, exactly right. And and for me, I mean, obviously that feels like home because, I mean, I didn't have to read the subtitles. I actually, <laughs> I actually, I actually turned on the Chinese subtitles. <laughs> so <laughs> just to, just to, you know, compare <laughs> to see how, how, um, you know, whether like I caught all of it. Because my, I mean, my, my native language, like dialect is Cantonese. So sometimes Mandarin, when it gets like really quick and you know Tony Leung doesn't have the best Mandarin because he's from Hong Kong so yeah sometimes I needed to turn it on just to just to catch what he was saying a little bit more um but yeah no I mean even if you think about like even the mother role play, played by Fala Chen she, I mean I haven't seen her since her early days in in tv series from from like Hong Kong tv series so I was so surprised to see her in this role because I never thought she had made it that big <laughs> so, that she was going to be, you know, in a Marvel film. Right. Uh, so I was, you know, it was just so many little surprises of um, familiar faces and stuff like that. And I and I, and I really like that sort of little touch to it. Um, I guess to me, it had a little bit of the <laughs> Hong Kong nostalgia in there as well, um, because I I could acknowledge how great some of these the cast is but i guess you know for some people who aren't into all this stuff maybe they won't notice as much but um but i mean you know you got tony Leung. i think i think you know like some of these people probably were star-studded if you knew who this guy was <laughs> oh yeah i mean as i say with tony Leung, i mean the guy's an absolute legend i mean he was also in one of our favorite movies um lost caution when we did our ang lee season as well so it's just kind of great to see him making like a Hollywood picture. Um, I don't know if he'll, he'll make many. Maybe it'd just be like stop, do like a cup of coffee, stop over like Chow Yun Fat, and then just like return to Hong Kong and be an even bigger star than when he left. So, but um, yeah, similarly, funnily enough, when Captain America came out, he posted a tweet to Marvel saying, um, "How about an Asian superhero?" And then he obviously gets cast as Shang Chi, and he sent another tweet saying. Thanks for getting back to me. <laughs> but um, yeah, he's um, he's doing all right for himself at the moment. He seems to be everywhere. So good for him. Absolutely. And obviously we've got um, a sequel on the way at some point soon because Marvel's got to keep the money rolling. Yeah, but I, I really think that the sequel isn't going to be the same because judging from the post credits... He's got going to be, you know, dragged into this whole Marvel thing as they set off into what phase four, phase five. I can't remember what phase are in now. Um, four, I think now. So yeah. So basically, um, yeah. So I, <coughs> I miss pay pretty much like I think almost a hundred percent phase three. So <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, it was um, basically I'm, I'm entire phase behind. Uh, but yeah, I mean, uh, I'll, I'll catch up. At one point. <laughs> uh, but yeah, what's your number five? Uh, number five for myself is 1971's Waking Fright by Ted Kocheff, um, an exploitation movie which sees a teacher stopping off in the town of the Yabba, which is an outback mining town, and he's uh, there got to stop off as he's on his way to Sydney to see his fiance, um, only to find himself drawn into an underground gambling game which leaves him broken sort of uh, 
getting more and more involved in the lifestyles and living of the locals of this uh, desert town. This is a film which I put off watching for the longest time and I have no idea why now because it is an absolutely fantastic movie and one that plays off on all our preconceptions of like small towns like you know when you go in the small towns and you've got the shifty locals who are there just to take advantage of the townies and this film like completely plays up on all those expectations and everything that happens uh, to Gary Bond's character in this is his own doing <laughs> so everything that befalls him is only because of his own stupidity and the choices he makes but Donald Pleasance um, is a real standout here as this uh, preacher who's also an alcoholic and also got a bit of a queer bent to him um, and the film itself is just got this wonderful dusty mist uh, to it as you're just watching this guy descend from being like this civilized highbrow teacher who's like used to this higher level of living and he's sort of like stuck in this outback um, assignment where he's teaching this whole town of kids in this one class in this um, outback town and he just basically wants to get back to Sydney to see his fiance and um, ends up taking this downward spiral um, which is just so engrossing to watch and I think it's just a really fantastic movie and one well worth checking out even though there is a really uh, kind of upsetting scene of uh, some animal slaughter in here which uh, is a little upsetting but kind of plays into uh, the story so um, it is excusable in that and does have a warning at the film to let you know that it's going to be happening at some point but definitely one worth checking out and uh, you can actually watch in the BFI player as well so it's a bit a little easier to get hold of as well number four Kim um, my number four is 2015's The Final Girls oh nice yeah I know <laughs> I, the, no, the final girls has been on my <laughs> on my list for a really long time and um, I managed to you know I managed to catch it because it finally went on Netflix so it was really nice um, so basically the final girls is about uh, a girl who goes to this tribute for her 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 mother's uh, her her dead mother well her, her, her passed away mother's <laughs> uh, very famous film um, surprisingly though, her mother doesn't really like this role, uh, that she did, uh, which turned her into this famous sque scream queen of the 80s, um, in this kind of, like, <laughs> fake version of, fake version of, uh, Friday, uh, Friday the 13th. <laughs> and basically, um, in the course of the film screening, um, a fire takes place and her and her friends go through the screen to escape and end up realizing that they've become trapped inside the film um, with no way to escape except to play out the entire film um, much like a horror film, you know, a <laughs> uh, horror slasher. So they had to do the whole thing and see where things were going. And uh, in the process, you know, she got to talk to this character which you know kind of bought herself some time with uh, her mother back in her you know even if it's not actually her mother yeah final girls is uh, a movie that's recently been gaining a strange amount of traction i think it's only been on netflix helps it as well but it's another great parody of the slasher movie genre i mean we've obviously had behind the mask the rise of leslie vernon as well but this one plays it more closely to sort of like the tropes of like as you said friday the 13th and yeah. sleepaway camp and all those classic sort of camp slashers and there's so many 
fun jokes and how these teens who are like supposedly so educated on like the slasher tropes a la like you know like scream but in doing so managed to make the situation so much worse like you have that great scene where they they're in the woods and the uh the characters in the film like offer to give them a lift and they're like oh no we'll be fine and it's like it's like 86 minutes later so they have to wait for the film to run again for the same van to go past for them to get the lift to the campsite um and the fact that they managed to kill the final girl by alerting them to what's happening in the film is just there's just so many stupidly funny moments in this um much less the fact it ends with a potential sequel um just uh I'm really kind of excited to uh to see if they ever do follow this up with a, like a final girls two or something. Yeah, I know, right? I I think you know that. Yeah, I think you you really nailed it in the sense that you know final girls is, is I really like movies like especially horror films like this who who play on tropes and and kind of give it a different type of twist like a movie and a movie type of thing. Yeah, yeah. And and that sort of thing is really I find it you can really play so much with <coughs> films like that and. And that's really what I liked about Final Girls because I really stepped into this mostly because I I do like the cast quite a bit, so I didn't have an issue with it. It was it kind of got me really into it, and then I remembered hearing like reading some really good reviews um, from other bloggers uh, back when this movie first came out. So I've always been really trying to ca- get my hands on this film so that I would be able to watch it, and I'm so glad that I did because it really didn't disappoint. Um, Mostly because, I, I don't know, maybe it's because we've been watching horror a lot, or maybe it's just you're starting to have this kind of, um, I don't know, uh, you're more like, I don't know what you call it, insensitive <laughs> to, the, to the films now, that sometimes when you watch horror films, it's so predictable that everything feels so tropey. Yeah. And really, it's, sometimes it's really hard to enjoy a horror movie as much when you watch a lot of it. And I feel like maybe this year that's the case because, I, like I said, I spent a lot of time doing mostly film festivals being my primary uh, movie picks. So it kind of ate away a little bit on me, um, I guess, on that level. Yeah, I mean, horror does obviously have that problem of falling into the usual sort of tropes. And it's why, like, J-horror became so big because it was playing by a different set of rules and it was a different visual aesthetic especially it's why we had like long-haired ghost girls like domineering over (laughs) like the likes of freddy and jason um much even especially in like terms of merchandise was where like sakura dolls were like outselling like the freddy krueger gloves um in like merchandise sales so Mm. but um yeah i'm always up for a, a fun slasher movie and i think this delivers on both like the comedic front and the slasher front, so it's all good times. Yeah. And yeah, just watching these uh, these kids screw, screw up time and time again is just really funny to me. So I really think that that's the key to it, right? The the comedy and the whole slasher. Because I'm not a you know anybody who knows me knows that I'm really not much of a '80s slasher movie. '80s anything, I'm not a big fan of. Like in terms <laughs> of horror, um, I'm kind of really sick of it because I feel like it's very rinse and repeat. And I know people are gonna like massacre me on this because I'm, I really like, it's just because I don't really enjoy it. <laughs> so it's just a personal preference. Right. Um, but I mean, my husband loves it. So I always end up watching some funky eighties movies when it, <laughs> when it, he, when it's his pick for movie night. <laughs> so, <laughs> so yeah, that's, that's life. Right. Um, but yeah, what's your number four? 
My number four um, is an uh, is another horror movie actually from 1968. It's Roman Polanski's Rosemary's Baby, which um, again will tie into our Tarantino season as it's part of the focus for his character in Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. But Rosemary's Baby is like one of those legendary horror movies that. It, because it's so in the public sort of countries, you think you know what you're getting already, but when you watch it, you realise there's a lot more to the film than the big twist reveal at the end. And obviously, Polanski's a very problematic director to talk about because of obviously his um, life outside of filmmaking, should we say. And um, just separating the art from director here, I think the film itself is very. is absolutely phenomenal. And it owes a lot to Mia Farrow's performance here who just really goes through the ringer as well as modelling that iconic haircut that uh, Tara Banks would butcher the hair of four different models on seasons of America's Top Model to replicate. For some reason she was obsessed with that Mia Farrow haircut in this movie, the really short um, haircut that she has in this. But the film itself with um, which is a young couple moving into a New York um, high-rise apartment to essentially start their family only for strange things to start happening and Rosemary herself to sort of suffer increasing paranoia that uh, not everything in the building is as it seems especially in terms of concerning her baby um, but uh, yeah this is one that's well worth checking out it's uh, one of those horror movies that definitely lives up to its uh, reputation it's just uh, it was a phenomenal watch that's really cool. I mean, I obviously, you know, Rosemary's Baby is is one that is super popular, especially in kind of the the horror scene. But it's one that I haven't seen. Um, honestly, I I really need to go back in time and, and catch up on some of these these older horror films um, because I you know there are so many blind spots on my on my mm. horror uh, classics. I guess call it that. I think that's the good thing when you have like 31 Days of uh, Halloween or when you do Hooptober. Hooptober in particular is, is great because it challenges you to not just stick to the old favourites and to venture off the beaten path more just to hit the criteria and like find like films from different countries for example and to hit these like horror blind spots like for myself it was obviously Rosemary's Baby this year so um, it was good to finally cross it off the list and discover much like Stepford Wives it's a lot deeper than like the general persona of what, what it is so now we're into top threes and what's in the in your top three Kim what's the bronze medal for this year <laughs> the bronze medal is uh, is a little indie film um, that I watched on Fan for Fantasia. Um, it's a Canadian Japanese film called Dreams on Fire. And Dreams on Fire is basically a film that is um, it's a it's a drama about this young dancer who uh, who dreams about making it big uh, from her small town and, and when she's in her small town and against her, her, you know, her uh, grandfather and mother's wishes. She goes to Tokyo uh, to make it big, but obviously things don't go quite as as planned as uh, she gets there. She ends up finding kind of these sketchy jobs um, where she has to dress up in these little costumes and <laughs> and um, entertain. 
And at the same time, she also kind of meets these different people who uh, sets her on different types of dances and styles and stuff like that. Um, that really kind of open her eyes to this the, to this world of, of, of dance um, as she slowly kind of uh, kind of you know goes on this journey to, 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 to kind of solidify her dancing skills a little. Um, I think it's, you know it's, it's a it's a movie that is is visually really really appealing um, from the costumes to um, just her journey. It feels so. It's kind. Of, it's just chasing your dreams, and you. There's this realism to the whole story because you see her in this, you know, little. I don't know how you call it. It's this this little room that she lives in that you can't even fit a bed. She just sleeps at night. There's a computer. <laughs> She's and and you just see this thing, and as she meets these horrible people, this boss that manipulates her, and and that sort of thing. It it has this really. It captures this. Um, really uh, neon lit. Well, not really neon lit, but like really vibrant nightlife in Japan. But at the same time, it also shows this kind of like the seedy underbelly of someone trying to struggle through it, um, trying to get all these different jobs and um, the different things that they're doing and, and whatnot uh, to, to kind of succeed and the struggles of it. Um, you know, so and and it it really is just a, a movie that's you focus on this one dancer and um, actually the main the main actress is uh, Bambi Naka and I believe she was model before this and this is like her first role much like um, the director here which is a Canadian director who this is their first um, directorial feature debut so it's a, it's all very first time type of thing. <laughs> Um, enough one I have to check out. So uh, thank you for again for adding to my ever expanding watch list. Kim with this list tonight. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I'm I'm a really big fan of of you know like dancing dancing films and stuff like that. And mm. I think that you know this one isn't kind of like it really steps up from movies like The Step Up. <laughs> you see, step that's that's more of a selling point. <laughs> Just the saying it's not Step Up and it's a dancing movie. <laughs> it's got my attention already. Yeah, because I think what's really interesting is is her <coughs> journey introduces her to so many different styles, and um, when you when you go in there, you realize that Japan is just like this cultural, you know, culmination of so many different things. And um, I don't know. I mean, I, I really I really thought the film was so nice because uh, I mean, this director was it was really crazy because. This director actually had a short in Fantasia before called Breaker, and you can actually find that on YouTube. Uh, Breaker is super stylistic, um, from the costumes to whatever. It really pays tribute to this film because um, I actually went back to look at it, and I think that the really crazy outfit that he used in Breaker, which is like a cyberpunk-esque type of short film, yeah, um, was used in the final dance battle for this film and i thought that was just a, such a nifty little thing i think there were like little changes to it but it was just so it was it was so fun to see like the little connection and that outfit was so nice also great yeah so what's your number three my number three from 1982 is john frankenheimer's the challenge um this is a westerner's idea of what samurai culture is about so 
I know there's a lot of people who dismiss it on that, but um, it stars a young Scott Glenn, who you probably remember from the likes of... Um, probably best as playing the wise man in Sucker Punch is probably the most memorable role that I can think of. But he's also, like, in a whole bunch of our movies, he's, like, in Training Day and Vertical Limits, he's in Virgin Suicides. He's one of those um, actors that when you you know he is and you suddenly remember like five or six other movies he's in but here he is when he's like uh, young and rugged um, and he basically plays this boxer called Rick who's sent to Japan to get a, a samurai sword um, only to find himself caught in the middle of a blood feud between these two brothers uh, one who's a businessman and the other who is a very sort of traditional um sort of martial artist he he runs like a dojo where they train in the ways of the samurai and rick finds himself being sent to steal the sword back from the uh samurai brother for the businessman only to find himself joining the cause of the uh samurai brother as he undertakes uh training and uh learns a sort of respect very kind of like last samurai um with the Samurai Brother teaming uh, up with Rick for a office block showdown uh, with the business from Brother, which uh, is really just an awesome sword fight to end it. But uh, yeah, this is um, a fun action romp uh, for Matey 2. And um, yeah, it's uh, Scott Glenn is just good as always. I mean, I don't think I've ever seen a role where Scott Glenn isn't good and it's kind of nice to see him having a leading role rather than a supporting role for a change but the cast itself is uh if you're into asian cinema there's some real standout uh names here you've got uh toshiro mifune who was obviously like one of kurosawa's uh, guys he was like seven samurai and uh, yujimbo we got Atsu, uh atsuto nakamura who again was in like kwamadan and um ceremony so if you like into Asian cinema, there's some some of these uh, cast are really going to sort of stand out to uh, you here. But while I'm not a huge fan of Frankenheimer across the board, um, this is sort of like a, a standout for him, and uh, definitely this this period as well, where he was like making films like The Prophecy and Fifty Two Pickup and Black Sunday with the uh, suicidal blimp. Uh, but uh, yeah, I definitely recommend uh, checking this one out. Cool. I mean, th this sounds really. This does sound really interesting. I'm gonna add that to my list. <laughs> so another Sunday afternoon movie for you. <laughs> yeah. So moving on to my number two, which is uh, currently available on Shutter, and that is uh, 2020's Vicious Fun. <laughs> I need and, to finish uh, this one. So. <laughs> If I did actually start watching it, it's, it is so uh, I can understand why you got it at number two. So, <laughs> yeah. So, Vicious Fun is, um, you know, I love a film that really sells itself with its title, and it really delivers. <laughs> I'm I'm really into that. So, uh, basically, Vicious Fun is about this um, 1980s film critic um, for this magazine uh, called Joel, and he finds himself, you know. <laughs> He goes out uh, as he trails and he stalks this guy who his roommate is uh, is dating, <laughs> and he ends up being in a bar where he over <laughs> he gets himself drunk and ends up falling asleep in the janitor's room or something like that or the janitor closet or something like that. When he wakes up, he realizes the place is locked down and it's all 
he's suddenly sitting in this self-help group for serial killers and he's been mistaken as one of the killers who didn't show up <laughs> so <laughs> as he sits there he hears these people with this crazy this, this group of people who are all different types of killers okay so basically every type of horror killer that you can imagine in a horror film <laughs> like basically they're sitting there around you you know, some of them are into cannibalism, some of them are into, you know, some of them are into slashing slashers, uh, slashing uh, sorority girls, um, that sort of thing. Everybody has their own little preference. <laughs> and uh, he ends up sitting there and trying to imposter his way through this when he realized, when they, when someone else walks in, um, another of the killers comes in late, which he had talked to previously in that night, and they... And basically reveals that he, you know, reveals his cover, you know, blows his cover. And um, another uh, another killer that's sitting in the uh, group ends up saving him. And they end up having to fight against these people and escape from them throughout the entire night. Um, obviously, the other femme fatale who saves him is uh, has her own plans. Um, kind of a little revenge plot of her, of our own, which... Uh, which really, it's where this is, is that everybody is so over the top. Um, everything is ridiculous. It it has a bit of the whole Kill Bill type of vibe. Um, and it, it's just so fun. I really like, I'm a big fan of um, the film, uh, the film company that does this, Black Fawn Films. I've watched almost all of their movies pretty much, except for maybe two. Um and I basically traced them right from the beginning of when they started making films, and it, and I think that you know this film is is definitely top. I mean, the last the last two years, um, this director Cody Callahan has really stepped up his game. Um, I mean, last year was the Oat Room made my top five, and then this year's Vicious Fun also made my top five. So I think he's really a, a director to look out for. Um, definitely. Uh, Definitely something there. I, I really, really think this, this this movie is just, if you want a good time and a horror film and kind of like really crazy shit going down, this movie really, uh, you know, it's a lot of fun. They, they're having fun and you're having fun and it, it, it really, it really works well. Yeah, um, certainly enjoyed what I've seen already. I mean, in the fact it's got Julian Richens and um, David Koshner in it. It's yeah. um, a real same point. And Shadow are really doing well for, like, their own productions at the moment. I mean, obviously, they got Tigers Are Not Afraid, which is a movie that I'm still thinking about now. Oh, even it's been a few years since that one uh, came out. And they keep somehow managing to constantly find these unique little gems. And it's funny how you said you were following the studio, because we seem to now be in this period now where people are following certain studios like either into Bloomhouse or A24 or Spectavision um, and this obviously being another studio people are following as well so that's exciting as well So, but um, no I will get around to finishing this unfortunately Shudder decided to crap out on me part way through this one so I need to get back to it uh, when I renew my subscription so awesome definitely hope you're going to enjoy it as much as I did <laughs> And what's your number two? My number two is a film which I'm sure everybody has either got an opinion on or heard of at least, and that is Promising Young Woman. Um, this is a film that, when it first started doing the rounds, everyone was very excited to talk about it, but 
for whatever reason it got uh, stuck in distribution hell and I think getting some uh, Oscar wins behind it really didn't uh, do it any harm at all as you can now finally get it on a physical copy as well but uh, this is uh, directed by Emerald Fenning who I believe um, does the uh, responsible for the TV show Killing Eve which I know a lot of people are very excited about um, but basically the film if you're not aware of it already uh, Carrie Mulligan um, plays this vigilante of sorts where she goes out and pretends to be drunk and waits for guys to hit on her and acts as a cautionary tale by punishing them or rewarding them if they uh, try to take advantage of her in a drunken state to essentially um, get revenge for her friend who was um, taken advantage of in a similar situation but this is um, a really 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 good movie I was so happy that it lived up to the hype that surrounded it because again this was another one that uh, the Gemma's Guide to Midnight Cinema crew were all just going ape over and uh, I know a lot of my feminist uh, friends were also going pretty ape over it as well so uh, but Carrie Mulligan is phenomenal in this and she deserves all the praise that you can give her for this because it's um, a fantastic film throughout and I'm not going to go too much into it to risk spoiling it but definitely go check it out yeah definitely on my list I'm a big fan of Carrie Mulligan I, I really think she's such a great actress um, and you know this is one I definitely am looking forward to especially because the, the cast itself is really stacked too you know so I'm I'm really uh I'm really looking forward to it. Um, it hasn't landed on anything that I have access to yet, but um, I'm hoping eventually <laughs> it'll come out to a cheap rental or something and I'll end up catching it. And now, our number one, our top of the heap, King of the Pile. What is your number one of 2021, Kim? My number one first time watch because it wasn't in 2021 <laughs> it wasn't a 2021 movie um is hand-rolled cigarette which is a hong kong drama um it's also a directorial uh feature debut and um a and stars gordon lamb which is usually a supporting role but this time he got the leading role <laughs> Go figure for an indie film. <laughs> so yeah, I mean he he is really a veteran in in the industry. Um, basically, he plays um, this retired British Chinese soldier because of um, because this film actually has the purpose of revealing kind of a chunk of history where these British Chinese soldiers were forgotten in the process of um, being under the British colony. <laughs> Uh, and then between China and whatnot, they lost their citizenship pretty much. They belong to no one. Um, and that's a chunk of history that people don't really know about. Um, and I didn't know about it either, actually, <laughs> until I watched this. And it, it was they, they did it to, do, to kind of highlight this person who's kind of stuck in the middle of nowhere where they couldn't really do anything. So he is doing these like um, kind of like a in-between guy. Uh, like the middleman for uh, sketchy deals with like drugs and uh, bad and like illegal <laughs> imports and whatnot, um, illegal deals and whatnot. Um, when he gets caught up with this uh, this 
young kind of South Asian man who who ends up getting caught in his cousin's dealings um, when they go to do this drug deal that he didn't want to do, um, which ends up stealing from this big boss um, who is very, very, very ruthless. <laughs> and he ends up holding, like, kind of giving, uh, like, giving him a safe space to, to kind of uh, get through this. Um, when he gets dragged into the mess, when the big boss, who he also deals with, <laughs> realizes the sketchiness in this whole situation. Um, and things just kind of, you know, the bond between these two men as, you know, it's kind of like, uh, as they live together and, and kind of like guide this younger guy on how to go through everything. Um, but I mean, I think, I think what's really great here is that you see, you see, um, you see Gordon, you know, it's Gordon, Gordon Lamb, right? Katong Lamb. So he, he kind of acts like this kind of leader type of thing and really guides him through this whole thing. And, um, from just the, I really think that director himself has a lot to do with this because he really does this really great job, especially with the cinematography and some of these action shots are done really, really well where, you know, it's almost like that, um, that hallway shot that you see in uh john wick is it oh uh, john wick old boy or uh old boy yes yeah. old boy that's it and there's like this hallway shot and he does this kind of replica but it's outside of this apartment complex going through the room and the fight is going through from one room to the next and he's the camera's just panning through the windows outside looking inside um, and I think that's one of the most stylish shots of the film. Um, but obviously, you know, there's a lot of different um, things as well because uh, the young man who's here, he plays, uh, he's he's played by Beepin Karmo, who is this, uh, this is his first time this guy's ever done any movies, basically, I believe. Uh, mostly what he does is uh, he's a, kind of like this really, uh, like a really, like he's really good at parkour pretty much <laughs> so okay. they in so they injected a lot of that parkour into you know him running away and giving him that little space to move so the movie itself is pretty high speed when you're going through that stuff but it also has this really nice balance of drama um between these two and their connection and um you know a guy that you know the older guy it, it's kind of very it's a it's a little bit expected also because the older guy obviously kind of like wants nothing to do with you you know he he doesn't want trouble he doesn't want all that stuff right he just wants to get through this make enough money and then leave you know everything yeah. um and then he ends up getting caught up in this and he he actually is you know he turns out that you know the guy ends up caring a lot more and you know the companionship and whatnot so um the hand rolled cigarette part uh is something that you know a habit that he has um, the older, you know, like, um, where he has this type of habit of doing the hand-rolled cigarette, and there's a whole symbolism between why the movie is called that when you watch it, and I just think it's such a great film because, you know, you see this kind of indie film, but, um, and, and, and it's, it's so nice to see, uh, you know, the, the characters in here. There are actually a lot of little sub-roles, which, um, are rather familiar faces in China, in Hong Kong films also. So I, I think it's I think it's such a great film. Like I, I don't have enough words to explain how great it is, but there's so much um, it's not just a drama, I think. Like they, they categorize it as a drama, but I think they put so much thought in the whole um, 
construction of the story itself because um, if you listen to kind of like I listened to an interview afterwards about this film and they were talking about how they really wanted to add meaning to it and one of it was you know bringing this kind of like dark part of history um, that people don't really know of the struggles of soldiers who were there to protect the you know, to protect the land, but they were never given credit for the things that they've done, type of thing. Another one that I have to, uh, I have to watch as well, especially if it's your know, number one first time watch of uh, 2021. So, yeah, I mean, a, a great part of it is that I'm still thinking about it. You know, that that's that's one of the main reasons why it's my number one. Like, if yeah. I had access to it, I would definitely watch it again because I, I really think it was it was such a you know. It kind of like punched you in the gut, <laughs> and then it's like just there. You know, you kind of still feel it. <laughs> so it's a good sign of a if a movie stays with you after you've watched it. Yeah, I know. So, yeah. So yeah, your number one. My number one. Um, well, one of my favorite movies of all time is Life Is Beautiful, about a father in occupied Italy uh, defending his uh, son from the horrors of World War Two by creating a fantasy-esque world for him to inhabit and the ties very nicely into my number one first time watch of 2021 as that's Taki Waititi's 2019's Jojo Rabbit um, a film in which a young boy who is a fanatical Hitler youth to the point where his imaginary friend is a is Adolf Hitler um, finds his beliefs being questioned when he finds out that his mother has been hiding a young Jewish girl in their attic and at the same time is torn between his allegiances to the Nazi regime and obviously his this young girl who he's developing feelings for and really making him question everything he thought he knew about uh, the Jews that he's supposed to be hating. While it was obviously sold as this wacky comedy because here's Taki Rutiti playing Hitler who's the imaginary uh, best friend of um, this little boy, which is kind of up there with um, Adam Green having the lead singer as Guara's imaginary friend who actually hates him in um, Haddonfield, the uh, sitcom that he did. But um, this film is, is, is very funny and at the same time is got some really great dramatic moments um in it and again this is another film where the cast just from top to bottom is just fantastic scarlett johansson gives a career breast as um jojo's mother rosie um and sam rockwell is again is a standout as this captain who sort of like plays the leader of these nazi youth but at the same time having come home heavily scarred from the war is sort of questioning the whole war ethic and is basically just going through the motions to ensure that uh, he's not put up against the wall by a firing squad we also have uh, support from Rebel Wilson in there and an absolutely terrifying Stephen Merchant as um, an SS captain it's a role that really makes me want to compare him to Michael Palin in Brazil where uh, Palin played like the head torturer and obviously in that film Terry Gilligan was like well what better person than like one of the nicest guys in the world to be like one of the most evil men in your movie and with Stephen Merchant this guy we know so well from like his comedic roles I mean he obviously was like co-creator of The Office and to here to have him play this towering and just 
absolutely intimidating SS officer um, is just phenomenal uh, piece of acting on his part and just really sort of adds to just one of the many reasons this film is just absolutely phenomenal and well worth checking out but yeah Jojo Rabbit it's been my bomb proof number one since I saw it pretty much at the start of the year and I've been waiting for a film to like knock it off that top spot and it does just not happen this year so 2021 belongs to Jojo Rabbit for myself that's awesome. I mean, Jojo Rabbit looks really, really great. Um, obviously, it's the one I haven't seen yet. Mm. Um, I mean, that's really great, right? I mean, our top tens, <laughs> most of the films we haven't seen each other's. <laughs> so it's a, it's, it's, a, it's nice, you know, next year we can catch up on each other's top tens. First time <laughs> exactly. <laughs> and it's like funny when you look at Ratiti's like back catalog of like stuff he's done. I mean, he did four Ragnarok. He did What We Do in the Shadows. Um... He did uh, Hunt for the Wilder People, which I still have to watch at some point. Yeah. These, like, really sort of fun New Zealand sort of set uh, comedies. Um, and he even sort of dabbled with the mumblecore genre with Eagle versus Shark back in, like, his debut. And then he does a movie like Jojo Rabbit, which taps into the horrors of, of war and, like, the the propaganda of like what the Nazi regime was like this idea of following Nazi youth um, and these kids that like believe the help in the war effort um, and obviously with uh, Jojo like interrogating this Jewish girl in, in his um, who's up in his attic and she just gives him all this false information like the fact that Jews can shoot lasers from their eyes and like all these like she's like plays upon this nonsense that he's been told in like um his Nazi youth camps about like how evil the Jews are and how they have all these superpowers. So, well, he writes this little um, guidebook called Yuhu Jew. <laughs> but uh, yeah, definitely one worth checking out, and I'm I'm very excited to check out Handroll Cigarettes. So I've got quite a few movies off your list now. It's going to be a busy 2022 already. <laughs> I mean, I already know my 2022 is going to be busy because it's just. So many movies I was gonna watch and I haven't gotten around to. Yeah. That oh, it's gonna be it's gonna be crazy. Um. But yeah, I'm excited. There's uh, now cinemas getting back into its flow again, and you know they've worked out a way for us to all see movies whether we want to leave the house or not. So um, yeah, and I mean just looking obviously in my top fifty, it's been a. a a good year um, just general for cinema and I'm hoping that 2022 will replicate that as well so uh, but yeah I've um, I'm, that's uh, our list obviously now so hopefully uh, you find yourselves as well with some some further viewing you can obviously check out our full list on our blog which is moosandteapodcast.wordpress.com is that right? yeah hey I got it right for a change um, and you can also follow us on Facebook and Twitter and Instagram as well. So come and say hi to us there. Please do hit the like and subscribe button wherever you happen to be listening to the podcast today and leave us a review. Let us know what you think of the show as it all helps raise the profile of the show. Um, but this brings us to the end of uh, 2021. So uh, thank you very much for listening. Thank you for uh, obviously joining us for our season of kick ass female directors. We hope you've especially enjoyed that season and. One that I, I think we, we have got plans to uh, do another season of at some point down the line. Yeah, for sure. Um, but uh, thank you as always to my co-host, Kim. 
and uh, thank you to you the listeners and we will be back in 2022 with our Quentin Tarantino season and more movies and we're going to have more entries in our Friday Film Club it's going to be great so make sure you come back for that but um, until next time have a happy new year and a good Christmas and uh, we will see you in 2022 until then good night <laughs>